The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We've covered from all sides of the world the crisis facing elephants. From three years ago to today, the problem and challenges to their survival in the wild and in captivity is at great risk. From Mozambique to Kenya to Brazil, today we go to Taiwan with my guest Tim Gorski, producer and director of the award-winning film How I Became an Elephant, which was the catalyst for when Tim and I met in 2013. Today, Tim is going to help us further understand the Asian side of the elephant crisis, from tourism and elephant trekking to undercover investigations into the wildlife trade to what is happening in China and a plan to significantly reduce the demand for ivory in China and Asia and while also raising awareness across the Far East, a sensitivity to animal welfare where historically and traditionally the connection to animals is consumptive for food, medicine, and social status. So welcome back, Tim. Thank you, Ellie. It's great to be back. Good to hear your voice. It's good to hear you, too. Um, it was nice visiting with you at Jackson uh, at 2015. Um, we were both there, and, of course, we got together again and said we've got to do another program because you're doing a lot of things right now. So um, to get today's program, let's get started. Uh, there's a lot we want to cover today, but um, let's start with a bang um, with the recent death of Gareth Crow. Ah, Gareth Crow. Yes, um, that was, I think, February 15th, just uh, just last, uh, about a month ago, a month and a half ago. Uh, Gareth was a 36-year-old Scottish man on tour in Thailand with his daughter, and uh, he was actually thrown from the back of an elephant and gored to death in front of his daughter, which is a horrific uh, experience, as you can imagine, not just for Gareth, but his daughter who had to witness the whole thing and all the other tourists that witnessed this event and also, believe it or not, a horrific event for the elephant itself. I was just going to um, say that. It had to be a yeah. horrific event for the elephant. And this is very, very common in, in Thailand in the trekking industry. 
you know, I've I've been uh, oh, I've been connected and working uh, investigating the trekking industry in Thailand uh, and all throughout Southeast Asia for well over five years. I've uh, I've worked undercover in Thailand, um, actually as a an elephant broker between Burma and Thailand. And I've surveyed every single trekking camp, 118 trekking camps in Thailand. And this is not uncommon. It happens. The death of a, a tourist on yes, an elephant hap- trek. Yeah, it happens at least once a year. Once a year, there's always there's a reporting usually once a year. The last one was also in, in 2015 uh, where an elephant went on a rampage and killed his Mahout, which is the elephant handler, and took off out into the jungle with three Chinese tourists on his back. Um, luckily, the tourists were not hurt, but the Mahout was killed. There's, um, you know, there's a report. One, sec- one second, back sure. up a second. What happens to these elephants? Are they, I know we're going to get into this a little bit more. Are they killed or are they just um, turned back into the system? Uh, exactly that. They're turned back into the system. They they don't put elephants down in in, uh, in Thailand. It's uh, kind of taboo. They're, it's a Buddhist country. They're not supposed to euthanize any animals, which obviously makes it very difficult for certain animal welfare organizations trying to do uh, good work. But um, they they rather than euthanize an elephant, which is a, a you know a very expensive animal, what they'll do is they'll retire the elephant for. a approximately 15 days, and this is an elephant who has killed a human being. They'll retire the elephant for about 15 days, and then they will kind of launder that elephant back into the system through uh, one of their sister parks uh, by renaming the elephant. And that way, you know, 15 days or two weeks later, another family of tourists is going to get on the back of that same elephant and have no idea that that elephant just killed someone. So the elephant's name, in particular, that killed Garth Crow, uh, was named Golf. Golf worked in Koh Samui uh, at the Island Safari Park, and uh, Golf is now in the process of being relocated to another park and renamed. So she will, or sorry, he will have a new identity. Wait a second. Now, a fifteen days is nothing. No, I mean, for it, it takes more than 15 days for the human to get over that kind of a tragedy and catastrophic incident. So for an elephant that is killed before and golf, did you say, to have golf, yes. gone through this and perhaps this elephant is killed before and he's given 15 days under probably not great conditions because we are talking about... Um, elephant trucking, and if you go to our previous program, How I Became an Elephant with Tim on this show, he'll explain to you the breaking, the the crush process that uh, trekking elephants go through. So you've got a traumatized elephant to begin with who's just had a psychotic uh, event or tragic event in the elephant's mind, and he's given 15 days to take a break and then he's turned around and he's called something else or she's called something else and they expect miracles to happen and that this won't happen again? I don't think they expect it won't happen again. Um, they just, they, they realize that 
they they don't want to lose this valuable animal to the to the system, so they just and and believe me, that animal will be punished severely if if he has not been punished already, um, and then relocated and just like enter right back into the system, and no one will know any better. It's it's, just- it's very common, and these elephants. You know, I, I really, I honestly don't believe it's in an elephant's nature to want to kill. I mean, these are vegetarians. <laughs> I don't think it's in their nature to want to kill, especially humans. But they crack. I mean, when they've been, they've been carted around in the backs of trucks for the better part of their lives, moved from venue to venue, forced to work in these tourist attractions as circus animals doing circus tricks or painting or carting, you know, tourists around on their backs. And they are beaten severely, you know, punished when they don't obey their, their mahouts. And a lot of these mahouts are very inexperienced, whereas, in the, you know, in history, you know, 4,000 years of history in Thailand, the mahouts uh, used to have a very close relationship with their elephants. But now most of the elephants in Thailand are owned by a very select few wealthy individuals and the mahouts are hired. A lot of them are, are Burmese, uh, inexperienced elephant handlers. So, um, so these, these elephant handlers are moved around as much as the elephants are. So the elephants never get a chance to develop a relationship with their elephant handlers, number one. And then number two, they have no social skills at all with other elephants because they're completely moved from park to park, wherever the, the needs are for, for elephant trekking, wherever the trend happens to be uh, popular at the moment. In this, in this case, it was in the island of Koh Samui. The elephants are uh, very, they become very antisocial. They don't even know how to socialize with other elephants because they're put into situations with elephants they don't know. And we talked about this very subject with Joyce Poole. And um, we talked about it with Scott Blaze with the Global Sanctuary for Elephants and Joyce and Petter Granley of Elephant Voices. We know so much more about elephants than we did so many years ago that we know this is going to happen. So um, during your investigations, you, um, you, said, you, you sent me some notes here that 7 million Chinese tourists visited Thailand in 2015, and 70% of those tourists went on elephant trek, that went on elephant treks were Chinese, and that you spoke with many. What did, what did they have to say? What is the attraction to take an elephant ride? Well, for, first of all, I, we should even start out with the bigger number that about 30 million tourists worldwide flock to Thailand every year. Uh, out of those 30 million, yes, uh, 7 million last year were from China. Uh, what happens is they get off the airplane in the airports in, in Bangkok and Chiang Mai, and they're barraged with these beautiful slick brochures on the different activities they can do around Thailand, everything from zip lining to river rafting uh, to yoga retreats. And then elephant trekking is always, I call it, the, the mother of all Thailand adventures. And they, they look beautiful. You see an elephant out there in the, in the river or in the bush. And, and I truly believe that, uh, that people come to Thailand and they, they have a curiosity for elephants. And they want to have an elephant experience. So they're, they're led on these tourist trails, these package trails. I mean, these package tours. So 
many of them don't even know why. When I asked them, I said, why, why are you going on an elephant trek? And they don't really know how to answer that. Um, because it was in the brochure is what they usually say, or because we want to have an elephant experience. And I asked them, do you know anything about these animals that you're getting on the back of and, you know, their history and where they come from and how they get here? And they typically say no, and we'd rather not know. (laughs) One guy actually told me once, he said, please don't tell me because I don't want you to ruin my vacation. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, So, I mean, to have an elephant experience, there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, without going to the circus, without going to a zoo, without buying a ticket, and without going on a a, a trek. You can have an elephant experience in Africa. It's a different elephant, granted. Um, And even seeing an elephant on a brochure in a Chinese or Thailand or or, uh, wherever the Asian elephants are, this picturesque, romanticized vision of an elephant in the forest is not interacting with people. Right. You're, there are very few places in Southeast Asia where you can actually go on a safari and see wild elephants. There are a few left in, in uh, places like Khao Yai National Park in Thailand. But there's no guarantee that you're going to see an elephant when you go on one of those elephant excursions. But with an elephant trek... You get uh, exactly what you pay for. You pay $30 or $50, and you know you're going to get on the back of an elephant and have an elephant experience and get your selfies with that elephant. Uh, By the way, that's when Gareth was actually killed, when his mahout stopped to take uh, pictures of Gareth and his daughter on top of the elephant. That's when uh, the elephant went, quote, unquote, berserk which actually just tells me the elephant finally had a nervous breakdown and, and, and had enough. And listeners, you can find the link to that article by um, googling www.globalpost.com slash article or just um, Thailand Elephant Kills Tourists. If you Google that, you'll find the article. So we're not making this stuff up, folks. Tim has been doing this for um, almost a decade investigating this, and you'll learn a lot if you listen to the previous episode, as I said before, How I Became an Elephant, which is a fantastic film. So um, another sad note, just as an aside, is African tour companies are starting to offer elephant rides on African elephants. So we can only imagine um, what could lie yeah. in the future if we go that way. So why aren't yeah, this, pe- um, Go ahead. This just... I was just going to say, this poor chap, really, he didn't have to die. You know, he had no idea his life was about to end. He thought he was going, you know, people trust the brochures, you know, and I think that's where we all make mistakes as tourists, that we often leave our brains in the trunks of our car when we go on these tours, and we just expect that we're going to be taken care of. Uh, And if this poor guy and his daughter had seen our movie, How I Became an Elephant. That's why we made the movie. I believe he'd be alive today, and his daughter would not have had to witness that horrific death. And uh, that's one of the reasons we made the film, was to educate people and to show them what is wrong with this industry from the animal's perspective and the people's perspective, because you are putting your life and your, the lives of your children at serious risk when you put them on top of the back of a very seriously traumatized animal. So why aren't people warned? I mean, we're talking about this now. We have a global listenership of 150,000 people. 
all the way to Kazakhstan, into China, into Taiwan. Why aren't people warned? Because it's one of the largest industries in Southeast Asia and especially Thailand. It's a moneymaker. And the last thing they're going to do is warn tourists that it's dangerous to get on the back of their elephants. So um, I would like to make a note here that your film, How I Became an Elephant, um, was responsible for Thailand outlawing elephant rides and street begging in the cities. So this is not happening in Thailand, or is it still going on? Oh, it's still going on in Thailand in a big way. Um, Our film really was a catalyst for them outlawing street begging, uh, elephant street begging in Bangkok. And that is when they take baby elephants out into the streets, into the tourist areas, and they they basically sell selfies. So you can get your selfie pictures taken with these elephants in these nightclub, touristy, very loud, congested areas where, of course, baby elephants do not belong. Um, that ban came out in 2009, along with the release of our film, How I Became an Elephant. So I really believe that we did have an effect on that level, but the trekking in the north and the south of Thailand still goes on. This is really an unfortunate um, incident and um, an unfortunate case of of what's going on with elephants. So we have to step away for a break. Stick with us. My guest is Tim Gorski and uh, with Rattle the Cage Productions. And we've got a lot more to talk about. Uh, good news, bad news, the ugly. So, But we're going to end on a really great note here. So stick with us and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. 
welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Tim Gorski, and we're talking about elephant trekking, elephant smuggling, elephant ivory in the Far East. So right before the break, Tim, we were talking about the death of Gareth Crow uh, on an elephant trek, and um, you've done a lot of investigations throughout Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and into uh, from 2015 to today, um, and previously in 2013, as to how you came up with the uh, the film, How I Became an Elephant, to bring this uh, issue to light. So we just heard that people still are not warned. We're, we, we hear of elephant treks and elephants uh, having psychotic breaks and killing people. And um, so... You're, in the film, How I Became an Elephant, you give a lot of information on how they're captured and laundered um, and run through this system. But during that investigation, you also uh, studied into or investigated into a lot of the ivory markets. Tell us a bit about that. Yes. Uh, while I was investigating the 118 elephant camps in Thailand and the 27 elephant camps in Cambodia and Laos, where the elephant trekking is, is actually growing exponentially, unfortunately, especially with the large influx of, of Chinese tourists who are unaware of the perils of trekking. I got a chance to spend some time in the, the uh, markets. There are tourist markets in all these areas where they, they do the elephant treks because these are hot zones for, for tourism. And um, they're your, your typical Asian street markets with souvenirs. And I noticed... Um, what I, I noticed quite a bit of ivory for sale in these small border markets that I think a lot of people, um, when I say people, people in the uh, ivory um, in the ivory industry, or, or I should say the, um, sorry, can we? The, the can sellers we versus the buyers. Yeah, right, right. They're there's a lot of uh, a lot of stats out there on the ivory trade and the ivory market. And what I haven't seen are any stats on the actual trade within the small markets, the small tourist markets in Thailand. And I spent quite a bit of time in these markets and paying good attention to what is being sold and who are the buyers. And what I saw were the, the big selling items in these markets are what we would call the, the small ticket items. These are not big, giant, elaborate, ivory, beautiful ivory carvings. These are small things like ivory bangles, ivory earrings, ivory chopsticks, because they can be sold to tourists very cheap. When I say very cheap, a, a pair of ivory chopsticks can go for $500 US. Um, they're sold very cheap on the, in these little markets. They're great souvenirs to some people. And they can be smuggled out of the airports very easily in your pocket, in your bag, or you wear them on your ears or around your neck or on your wrist. So what I noticed was uh, in the hours I've spent watching these, these small ivory dealers, I noticed, I witnessed in one shop at least 10 sales. And out of those 10 sales, about 70% of the purchasers were, were Asian, primarily Chinese tourists. And the other 30% were Westerners, primarily Europeans and, and North Americans. And these were people that knew what they were buying. They knew they were buying ivory, and they knew that it was going to be easy to get out of the country. So it wasn't like they were, they were ignorant. They may be ignorant to where that ivory came from, because there is 
there is a legal ivory market in Thailand. It is legal to harvest uh, domestic or domesticated elephant ivory. So it gets mixed in. You've got African ivory. You've got uh, quote-unquote domesticated elephant uh, ivory from Asia. And then you've even got mammoth ivory all mixed in. So it's really hard to tell what's what in these markets. But, um, but what I did notice is these, these items add up. When you add up all these small ticket items, you're talking about thousands of dollars a day in these little tiny markets. It's going out overseas to the U.S. and to China. So are we talking about hundreds of elephants then? Uh, probably, yeah. I think you can get about, a, it depends on the size of the elephant. If it's coming from uh, an Asian elephant, Asian elephants tend to have much smaller ivory, and it's usually the males that have the ivory. But you can probably get 100 sets of chopsticks from a small male uh, elephant. Um, so we're talking about probably... Economies probably, of scale. <laughs> yeah, on, exactly. On, even though it's a small economy in these little markets, it still shows you how much ivory is going through. It's unregulated. Un- and, completely and, undetected. And undetected. No one's, yeah, the surveys that are coming out from... There's great surveys out there from IFA and from... Uh, from National Geographic, but no one has really paid a lot of attention that I know of to these small markets where uh, where the ivory goes flooding out and it goes right through the airports undetected because people are wearing it on their wrists. Wow. that's that, that, It just astonishes me. I mean, I picture going to an airport here and you have to take off your shoes, you have to take off your belt, you have to take off everything practically, and yet you can walk right through on the right. other side with uh, an ivory bangle or an ivory earring, do, do they get busted? Say, do they get no. busted when they hit the United States, or because it is illegal to bring it here? I'm not talking about Asia, because there is, right. as you said, a legal. It, it's very convoluted and very confusing. There are legal ivory markets, and that's what we're going to get into a little later. And what a lot of this program is about is shutting down the ivory trade by giving it no value. As long as we continue to put a value on ivory, then we can't stop this trade. But do these people get busted in the U.S.? Do we have good eyes happening here or do they just walk through? I I believe they're walking right through. I have heard of very few busts in in the States. Uh, Well, I mean, think about it. I I know you travel. Have you ever been asked to pull up your sleeves to see what you're wearing underneath your your sleeves or underneath your your shirt collar? I've never had anyone look on my wrist to see if I was wearing an ivory bangle as I come through the uh, come through uh, immigration or security. Huh? No, I haven't. But then I usually, because of so many precautions these days. Um, I don't wear anything like that, but I can't imagine having the balls, so to speak, to come into the U.S. wearing something that could be contraband. I, 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 I actually don't... asked uh, – sorry to cut you off. I actually asked a guy. Uh, I was at a market in Laos, uh, in northern Laos, a place called Long Pabang, where they were selling ivory chopsticks. And I asked the dealer, I said, these are, these are ivory, right? He said, of course. I said, well – you know, this is illegal. How, if I buy this, how do I get it into the United States? And he said, that's not a problem. He said, just buy a box of, of wooden ivory chopsticks and just mix it in there and no one will ever know any different, believe me. Now, that was his advice. So this guy knew he was dealing in something illegal and he was actually educating me on how to get it out of the country and into my own country illegally. 
Wow. Well, this is where, you know, I'm just going to highlight some other programs that we've had. We're working dogs for conservation. Um, people like Pete Coppolillo and Megan Parker and folks like Sam Wasser and, and these dogs that are trained to sniff out ivory. And if we can get more of these dogs, not only into the system on the far east side and African side, but these dogs into the system here in our airports, then they'll sniff it out. So um, moving on, you know, we've we've talked about um, the Asian market here and what we've we've covered so far. So with previous guests that you and I both know, people like Damian Mander, people like Joyce Poole and Petter Granley and Scott Blaze that are trying to educate and and, and stop and create to buy time for elephants. Um, we know this. We know what's going on. But as, as you say, the real answer lies in China. So what can we do? Yes, uh, there, that is exactly it. The answer lies in China. Uh, and um, thankfully, we have people like Damien Mander down there risking his life to buy time. Um, I, I tell you, we, what we really need to do is continue and, uh, and increase the awareness campaign in China. And I'm seeing some really, really wonderful things happening from within China, actually from, from the Chinese, not, not from Westerners, from Chinese working within China that actually care about these issues. There's just still not enough education coming through on a mass scale in China. So we need to increase that. And Wild Aid's doing a great job. IFAW is doing a great job. But we hit, need to hit them from many, many different angles. And um, there's some of the good news from China. I'll tell you, there's a, there's a new documentary that was made by a Hong Kong company called Phoenix TV. The documentary is called Blood Fang. And it illustrates the ivory trade very, very well. They did a great job with it. Um, they covered the, the arrest of a very infamous dealer named Little Dragon, uh, Xiaolong is his Chinese name, um, was the largest ivory bust ever in Beijing, was covered in this film, Blood Fang. Um, the arrest of the Ivory Queen uh, was also covered in that, uh, in that documentary. She was, in, this doc- she was in Tanzania, right? Or Kenya? Right, right, exactly. So, and this was a, a film that previously Chinese... Uh, Distributors who I've been in in touch with a great deal are Chinese largest television distributors because that's what we're working on now. They told me that no one would be interested in this kind of programming. They're not interested in these investigative types of reports. But Blood Fang uh, was released uh, three months ago and has had 13 million views online alone. So that tells me that there is interest in these kind of reports and, and programs within China. And um, so that's that's a little bit of good news. So is this film, um, Blood Fang, is it available online? Can our listeners see it? Uh, yes, uh, I can. It's it's on uh, it's on Phoenix TV's website. It's efong.com. I think it's, it's basically like a YouTube of China. Um, I can give you that link and you can put it on your, your page if you want. Um, okay, or just see Google, you later. or Google Blood Fang, the, the movie, uh, the film, the documentary. Might, yeah, might not work because that's the translation of the oh, Chinese. Okay. Yeah, I can for you. Okay, but I also understand, um, so not only is China um, 
still participating in these issues, but they are also changing. Uh, the young Chinese, the millennials that are coming up, you know, the same generations that 19, 20 some odd year olds, they're looking at the world slightly differently. And you have a great project coming up. We've got a couple minutes here, so let's just uh, get into a little bit of that, and then we'll um, uh, pick that up in our last section. So what is this project that you're working on that's going to help bring all this together? Well, we've, well, what I've noticed was in China that there's still not a lot of information getting out there on a, on a grand scale. There's good information getting through, but most of the documentaries are, are uh, they're really kind of waving that stick at China, telling them how awful they are. And that just doesn't work. I mean, China's not doing anything different than the U.S. was doing, you know, 75 years ago when it comes to the ivory trade or 100 years ago. They're just doing it more efficiently. And just, and, and to even do, today, it's still going on. Right, exactly. Yeah, America's number two, right, as a consumer. So what we need to do is, is, is engage China and engage the millennials. And there was a recent report in Forbes magazine about the 382 million Chinese millennials that are demanding social or are demanding corporate brand responsibility. So this is this that, that that's and, really huge and it very is. it's a huge new step that you know in terms of westernization happening around the globe this is a really big step to be happening in China. Yes, I think it's enormous. And uh, these these millennials are now illustrating with their buying power that they want to support companies that are doing something good, especially for the environment. And I think this stems from the fact that China's air quality is so bad and they're having so many of their own environmental issues that this new generation of, of young, wealthy people are saying, look, we've had enough. We're not going to support you. We're not going to buy your product unless you have some responsibility and take some responsibility for our environment. And this is uh, this goes along in, in in line with Wild Aid's campaign and status symbols and the economic the rise in the economic middle class in China. It's changed dramatically over the last couple of decade decades. So the millennials of this rising status class have a huge impact. So you have a project going on. Um, tell us, well, actually, we're not going to be able to get into that right now. So why don't we go ahead and take a break now, and then okay. we'll come back and get into your project. So stick with us. Lots okay. of exciting stuff still coming up, and we'll be right back. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. 
our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles, wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. This is Our Wild World with my guest, Tim Gorski. And right before the break, we were talking and getting into Tim's newest project, which is um, a TV series that is going to engage or is engaging uh, the Chinese millennials that we were just talking about. So tell us a little bit more about that, Tim. Okay. Yes, it's a project we've been working on developing for quite some time with uh, China's major content distributors on on broadcast and VOD, but um, let me back up just a little bit and talk about a current show that's that's received a lot of uh, publicity lately in China, and it's a TV series called Wonderful Friends, where they've taken four, or, sorry, five celebrities, and they've taken these celebrities and they've put them to work in a zoo where they have to learn how to care for the animals. And it sounds okay, you know, and I've watched a few episodes, and um, I have very mixed feelings about it. I feel like the show is kind of taking us a step back by uh, showing animals as a novelty, you know, uh, chimps wearing little jumpsuits and things like that, and actually putting these celebrities into dangerous situations with tigers and lions. But what that show showed me was that there's an interest in China in seeing animals as individuals as opposed to uh, consumptive products, which first of all, that gave me a little bit of hope. And they put thought bubbles where the animals are actually giving their thoughts to the situation. So they've kind of anthropomorphized the animals as well, but it still kind of painted these, these pictures that, uh, that, that captivity is okay and that using animals for entertainment is okay. And um, so I did a little bit of research, and I found out that within a couple of weeks of this show's premiere, there were hundreds of thousands of activists and millennials from within China that were up in arms about this show, demanding. They were going on on WeChat 
and on uh, Weibo, you know, China's basically China's Twitter and uh, and Facebook, demanding that this show be canceled because of the way they're depicting animals, and animals should be depicted as something to be protected and saved. And that just gave me great hope that this is a momentum within China led by Chinese. These are not Westerners talking now. And, um, and that led me to uh, an organization that I had no idea existed, an animal rights organization in China called the Beijing Love It Animal Protection Charity, um, who was actually quite influential and loud uh, about uh, helping people understand the animals, promoting changing in ad- attitudes, behaviors, policies, and regulations. Um, and I thought this was fantastic when I found this organization. I actually just contacted them last week. But that program, anyway, and all the negative publicity it's getting tells me that China is definitely ready for our program. And our program takes this to the next level. What we're trying to do is we're trying to engage the Chinese on a very holistic level by taking, we're calling it uh, an international transmedia adventure campaign for cross-cultural conservation. And what that basically is, is it's an adventure reality show where we've partnered with several African organizations and Chinese distributors uh, online and broadcast to create an adventure program where we take your average Chinese youth, and we dump them out in Africa to work with conservationists and rangers and people that are trying to protect the wildlife in an attempt to really engage them and and get them invested in these animals and the people trying to protect the animals. So it's a very unique approach to reducing d- demand in ivory because we're infusing the messages into the entertainment. And people in China, we've done a lot of studies. I've spent two years studying this. The most popular TV shows in China are travel shows and adventure shows. P- Chinese people want to see Chinese going out on wild adventures. And they're being called the new, the Jack Kerouacs of, uh, of the new China. So these, these young folks, these millennials, really want to have these experiences. They want to see these experiences. And they want to know what's out there. They're really curious. So we're going to send through, we're going to have a casting call uh, where, where our cast is chosen through their social peers on, uh, on WeChat or QQ, which is, uh, again, their, their major chat platforms, which has over 500 million users. And we're going to let them choose the, uh, the cast for this project. And then we'll have a final vote from a celebrity, uh, a celebrity cast of experts. And we take them on this epic journey to Kenya where they get to work with people like Joyce Poole, Damian Mander, Daphne Sheldrick, Ian Douglas Hamilton, where they get to really know the people, the technology, and take them on an adventure of a lifetime invested over 12 episodes. And the reason we decided 12 episodes was because we, I realized that these one, one-off documentaries weren't cutting it. We need people to get invested in the characters. So by doing a series, it enables people to keep investing into the characters, keep coming back for more, and we get deeper and deeper into the issues as we go along. And then we build that right into you know series number two, which we're planning on doing with uh, with Ocean Giants. So um, well, this is it's, fascinating, it's, and, and yeah. it's, it's really exciting, and 
um, I'll just put in right here, Wild Eyes is funding the Kenya aspect of this project, so it's very exciting. And I do want to clarify that when you say adventure and travel, we're not talking about sensationalized like Survivor, Africa, no. or I Survived, those kinds of reality shows. We're talking about um, an adventure show with a conservation twist that um, puts the the Chinese youth, the the cast, into situations that they must deal with with reality. It's not about, you know, risk and danger and um, th this sensationalized e e excitement. It's about facing reality with real people doing real conservation work on the ground without creating um, extreme situations, right? Right, exactly. And our our target audience is, of course, high net worth, sophisticated, educated Chinese millennials. Those are the people that have the power to make the change right now. Those are the people that are buying ivory that don't need to be buying ivory. Those are the people that don't necessarily know that ivory comes from a dead elephant that has to be harvested. So we're going to take these, these – I call them youngsters. They're youngsters compared to you and I, um, but they're young adults. And we're going to put them into situations where they have to figure out and problem solve with their African partners. And we'll, the, the goal is that they come back to China as active stewards for the environment to be the new leaders, the new voice for African wildlife and even Chinese wildlife. Because I really believe in the youth of today. Uh, they can make educated decisions, but we have to give them the information. And right now they're getting all their information through entertainment. They're not looking for information the way that, you know, people of our generation look for information, you know, on, on the news. They're looking for information through entertainment. Well, so we combine the, with, the best. That's the same we, with our kids here today. You know, this extreme exactly, entertainment, extreme sports, yeah. take a risk, you know, challenge. It's what one race yep. car driver had said, you know, people don't go to car races to see who wins. They go to see who crashes. So this is a whole change in the model of conservation is to get people engaged in the real world. Our We're wild combining world. the best of adventure and documentary with conservation. And our, our goal is to – we don't want to continue down the path of uh, the message that poaching is uncool or wildlife trafficking is uncool. Not that that's a bad message, but our goal is to make a, a new message – that conservation is cool and it's fun. That's the idea of this program. So it complements uh, Peter Knights's program, Wild Aid, who was on uh, our program, and that program was titled Selling Conservation, which uh, is the tactic of going and using celebrities to um, make very high tech, glitzy, fun advertisement using celebrities in China to make. Uh, to help people understand that wildlife trafficking and poaching and killing of these ele elephants or in rhino or whatever is not cool. But once again, it's selling conservation through a one minute or two minute really high tech fun advertising. What you're doing in this project is really steeping and immersing the, the, the young, the youngsters that are going to be the cast yeah. members over several weeks to make not only a 12-week episode, but it doesn't happen in 12 weeks. It takes a little bit longer than that on the ground. So it also brings me back to something that we did not say about this uh, TV show in China, Wonderful Friends, 
of which your your project is going to be in direct contrast to. But this wonderful Friends project, the zoo that it's being filmed at, is Chimlong uh, yes. Safari Park. So it's important to say that at this moment because a lot of what we've been talking about and what we're going to be talking about on this program in the future is the Zimbabwe elephant crisis and the zoo, the elephants that are being taken from the wild. And so far it's been almost, I think, 38 to 40-some-odd elephants that have been taken from Huangi National Park and sold to China to be in Chimlong Zoo. So um, this program that you talked about, Wonderful Friends, um, I'm really glad to hear it's receiving such backlash, and it's surprising that um, it is Chimlong. And do anybody, does anybody there know that the elephants that they're highlighting on this program were wild-caught baby elephants ripped from their families and um, put into terrible conditions in Zimbabwe, and some of them have died to end up at Chimlong. Does anybody know that? I seriously doubt it. Beyond you and I and some of your listeners, I seriously doubt it. So are, is your project going to highlight some of this in, in a non-libelous, non-slanderous way? We can do that here on this program, but I understand you can't <laughs> do that on your program, especially since you're working in China, a closed country, so to speak, um, for uh, Chinese audiences. So how are you going to go about getting um, getting the, the, the broadcast, getting the the economy of scale, so to speak, and uh, viewership in China for your project? That that's actually was our first step. I wanted to make sure that this was viable before I started production. So I spent a better part of a year in China speaking with China's largest distributors of content for broadcast and VOD. And what we've settled on, we've, we've, we've spoken with the four largest distributors in China. And they're all very interested in the content. Uh, <clears throat> through two of those distributors, the, the distributors we've decided to partner with, uh, we're looking at approximately 900 million viewers. That's almost the entire country of China. We've got well over 200 million viewers on broadcast. Um, we've got about 500 million viewers uh, of audience online on VOD, video on demand. And um, the way we engage them first, though, is through the social media contest. The social media contest will live on WeChat, which has 500 million users. So right there, we're going to engage them through that app and actually let the, let the peers go through the first round of judging and help select from these video, the video casting calls what we're going to do. And then the second round of judging will be done by certain celebrities and experts. Um, you, you may even be on that panel with, with others. So we'll pick the, the right crew, the right cast for the project. Uh, but our real focus is on the digital reach. That's where it's at because that's where the program will live forever. On, on VOD, on platforms like Yoku and ITE, uh, who have already expressed great interest in distribution of the project. We've already received letters in, of intent from these companies that want to distribute the project. So that's how we're going to reach them. We know that they want the, uh, the programming. It's just a matter of we need to produce it now and get it to them. So you're looking for funding, too. So as I said a little earlier, Wild Eyes is supporting through a grant uh, the Kenya part of this project. So um, how can people help? 
Well, we're looking, obviously we're looking for grants or donations. We are a, a nonprofit in, in uh, the state of Florida. Uh, we're a 501c3 called Rattle the Cage Productions. So people can donate to Rattle the Cage Productions. Uh, and we'd be happy to give you a credit uh, in the program for, for donations. Um, they can donate through Wild Eyes. Uh, we're looking for grants. We've received a grant from Humane Society International. Uh, we're looking for some, uh, and from Wild Eyes, of course. Uh, thank you very much, Ellie. You're and, welcome. Uh, we're looking for other matching grants for those. And, uh, and we're also looking for corporate sponsorship. As I said earlier, uh, Chinese millennials are looking for company brands that are taking responsibility for our environment. So what we're looking for is holistic branding. We're calling it journalistic holistic branding, where we can actually put brands to the test in the field. We're going to need technology. We're going to need drones. We're going to need, uh, you know, land cruisers or some sort of, of trucks and vehicles and, and GPSs. All these things can be incorporated into the programming, and we want to encourage corporate sponsors to jump on board. We'll feature your projects. You can sponsor an episode or two, and then help us get this whole project funded. So it's not just dollar bills with faces on them that you're looking for. You're looking for corporate sponsorship and corporate branding by them donating materials and uh, you know hard hardware and materials and supplies that will be well, used in true, the field. Of course. Okay. Yeah, we, we would ideally we would love to see a corporate sponsor per each episode. So let's say. Um, just say, for instance, if we get a, a vehicle company that comes in and wants to sponsor an episode, to sponsor an episode financially would be a, a financial commitment of about $170,000 for production for one episode. Uh, and then if they can get us a, a vehicle to use in the bush, we can feature their vehicle. Their vehicle becomes a character in the story. So what better way? Why, why pay for advertising when you can actually feature your product in the real world you know, being used by experts out in the field. I think it's much better than actually paying for advertising. Well, I think it's much better than, what, J Jurassic World, that so <laughs> far has the um, most corporate branding in a film to date. And, and it's very subtle, but if you watch that film a few times, you will see a tremendous amount of corporate sponsorship and corporate branding, from the silliest little things to... Um, vehicles as you just said so if they want to do something real instead of greenwashing do something for the environment come on corporations um donate get a hold of uh, me get a hold of our wild world get a hold of tim gorski follow us on facebook find us on twitter and uh tim's webpage rattle the cage correct what's your website uh rattlethecage.org they can send me a message through there we have a. We actually have a website for the project. Uh, it's called bondingwithgiants.com is the website, but it's password protected. So if you want access to the website, uh, you're going to have to contact me personally because this website is specifically for producers and partners and, and sponsors. And just so uh, our listeners know, on our social networking, on the Our Wild World Facebook page, we'll, we'll be providing a lot of the links that we referred to in today's program um, and the articles and the uh, wonderful friends uh, and, and the backlash that that's going on. But unfortunately, we're out of time today, Tim. It's always fabulous talking with you. 
Oh, you too. Thanks again for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours on this stuff. I was just going to say that. I think we're going to probably have to do another show pretty soon because there's a lot that we talked about that we really didn't even get to cover today. So hopefully we'll have you back really soon. And in the meantime, thank you for your time tonight. And thank you for having me, and I hope to see you soon out in the field. Absolutely. We're planning on getting together in Kenya sometime in June. So we'll meet you and our listeners out there in our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.